0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 22 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Gabriel Blackwell. Gabriel is a writer. His new novel, Doomtown, is out in May from Zero Gram Press. He joins me from his home in Spokane, Washington. Welcome to the show, Gabriel.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. Very
0: happy to be here. How is life in the Pacific Northwest?
1: Oh, it's quite nice. Um, we had a little bit of a false spring, uh, so it was warm for about a week, and then um, we had snow and hail, and uh, it's always... The, the weather here is always fairly uh, exciting, in my experience. We we just moved up here a few years ago, but since then, it's been nonstop uh, wildfires in the summers and lots and lots of snow in the winters. Uh, so, But it's it's also... Uh, just incredibly beautiful where we are, um, that right in the middle of downtown, there's a, a giant, uh, waterfall, Spokane falls. Um, and so the, the, city is sort of crisscrossed by bridges, uh, from which you can see the waterfall. That's just a, a really
0: nice place to be. must be very different from living in Florida.
1: It is very different from living in Florida. Although, uh, where we were in Florida was also really beautiful, um, we lived along a, a bluff uh, that ran alongside uh, two different bays, um, and I would take that route all the way to the university where I taught. Uh, it was about a 20-minute drive, um, but definitely the most beautiful commute I've ever done.
0: Wow. As somebody who's wanted to go there for years, what are the best things to do as a tourist in the Pacific Northwest? Well, um,
1: I think the bookstores here are very good. Uh, And and certainly that's what I always gravitate toward. Um, I lived in Portland for, oh, maybe 12 years um, and went to uh, a bookstore called Powell's Books at every possible opportunity. Um, There's a a few really good uh, smaller bookstores here in Spokane as well. Um, But, you know, it's also a place where uh, lots of people you know do outdoor stuff um, so there's uh, there's like a giant waterfall uh, near Portland as well multnomah Falls um, and a, some really beautiful hikes uh, around there um yeah I, I don't know that you could go wrong uh, and Seattle is also quite beautiful I, I think I um, had a mistaken idea of Seattle because I'd only ever visited the downtown part uh, but as soon as you go north of the downtown it's just beautiful it's um, you know dotted with lots of Uh, large bodies of water and hills. And um, that's quite uh, picturesque.
0: Mm. Okay, I will have to come. (laughs) Yeah. You've you've written a number of novels, uh, short stories, criticism. You're the editor over at Rupture. How did you enter the world of writing and criticism? Um,
1: How did I enter? Well, I started at the Rupture uh, originally, just as a book reviewer, um, so it's a, a magazine that was started by Matt Bell, the writer Matt Bell, and I think sometime in the first few issues, uh, Matt published a piece of fiction that I'd written, and I really liked the stuff that he was publishing, and so I asked, you know, is there anything that I can do to help the magazine? And he said, well, we have a need for book reviewers. And so I started writing reviews um, at that time. And then uh, he asked me to become the reviews editor there. um, And then I stuck around long enough that I became the editor in chief. Uh, But uh, that was more or less my entry uh, to reviewing and criticism.
0: Okay. And before that, with your academic background, um, how'd you get into that line of work?
1: I did did an MFA. I did a Master of Fine Arts. Um, I did it. I think I want to say with like the purest of intentions. Um, I didn't recognize at the time that this was a thing that one needed to do in order to teach writing uh, at the university level. I really just did it because I never had any instruction in writing whatsoever. Um, I, as an undergrad, I, I was just English literature major, English and world literature major. Um, and I hadn't taken any writing classes. And I just I was conscious that I both wanted um a new approach to reading and writing. And also that I probably needed some sort of guidance in terms of uh, how to go about becoming a better writer. Hmm.
0: Let's move on to your new, new novel, Doomtown. It's out from zero gram in May. It's about a linguistics professor dealing with the death of his son as the rest of his life also falls apart. I don't think you could come, you could have come up with a better title. Could you tell us a bit more about your book?
1: Sure, so uh, Doomtown, and uh, the title comes from, um, I think probably at least some people will be familiar with uh, like Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, which is very much the worst of the bunch, uh, begins in uh, Doomtown. There were uh, a few Doomtowns, uh, but they are these uh, sort of test sites for uh, atomic weapons in the uh, Nevada desert. Uh, and they were set up as real towns with mannequins sort of taking the place of human beings. And we uh, tested the the bombs on those sites and saw what stood and what melted and what was completely destroyed, et cetera. Um, the, the book really has nothing to do with that. Um, my book has nothing to do with that. Uh, but the I think... The thing that I was trying to get at in the book was um, just sort of basic corruption um, that I saw in the world. And, and I, the character, the, the narrator of the book uh, shared my sort of negative views of um, the way things are, are done in this country at this time. I originally had the idea to write the book uh, as a sort of near future uh, climate disaster book, but I didn't want to write a big, ridiculous, like, day after tomorrow kind of uh, disaster book. I want it to be much smaller in scale, much more personal, um, and, and so it focuses on the single uh, professor's life, um, but, you know, as you say, there's sort of everything is uh, falling apart around him, I, I, so, you know, one of the effects of of um, climate disaster is just to make everyone uh, just a little bit uh, crazier, right? Um, and I think that's something that maybe long-term, it's it's certainly not the most spectacular uh, outcome or result, um, but near-term it is the most, it seems to me it's the most dangerous. Uh, and that's what this book was intended to explore. Um, I think when I told the publisher that, uh, Jim Gower at ZeroGram, um, he said, I, "I this I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's it's really a book about this." Um, and so I, um, that may or may not have, have come through in the writing. Uh, but um, but you know, it was also a way for me to explore uh, the sentence in a different way than I had done in my other work. Um, and I think that was the, the joy of writing it, was getting to to write these long and sometimes um, quite digressive uh, sentences. And that was the, the thing that kept me wanting to write it and it very much kept me wanting to revise it once it was done.
0: The way you set up the chapters, and the chapters all start with the title, like uh, when he talks about the event that happened or something something like that. So you, we get an idea of what's going to happen in the title, and often you just dump us into something and then reveal something really shocking and then go back and explain it a bit later. And I really love the way you've done that, and it really does um, goes back to that whole idea of of being ready for something bad to happen. And I think in your book, as you go back to, you know, things like climate change, I think that feeling of impending doom goes the whole way through this book.
1: Yeah, and the chapter titles are um, also kind of a way to, to, to push the narrator away from, from the reader, to push the narrator away from the center of the book, uh, because it's also very much a book about how, how we communicate uh, with each other. Um, This is the struggle that the narrator is having. How do I communicate what I think is actually authentic to the people around me? And he decides on, I'm just going to, basically, I'm just going to tell parables. Uh, I'm going to borrow parables and myths uh, from other cultures as a way to better communicate my emotions, my thoughts to other people, because at least that is honestly dishonest. You know, mm. they will understand that what I'm telling them is a fiction and not um, not uh, a true uh, account of anything. Uh, because I think at the point that begin the book begins, he's lost faith in in truth in sort of um, uh, shared reality.
0: Yep. For me, the book was just compulsive reading, and I had to kind of finish it quite quickly because there's a sense of dread around every corner. Um, The last couple of novels that made me feel that way was Something Happened by Heller and The Tunnel by Gas. Did you have any specific influences writing the book? I did. I
1: did, although, um, and and those are fantastic books, um, but I think um, I had, So, as I said, I was interested in exploring these kind of long, digressive sentences, and I think at the time that I was writing, first drafting this book, I had just started reading uh, a French writer named uh, Roger Le um, New Directions put out these two very small books uh, called uh, The Story of Love and Solitude and The Attraction of Things. And they're these incredible books. Um, and I think not particularly well-known at least here in America, uh, but full of these fantastic sentences and certainly not anything tonally like Doomtown, um, but at least the, the way that he puts together his sentences, I, I kind of wanted to at least um, you know, figure out as a practitioner, like how does this work? How do, how do I put together a, a longer sentence? I also had in mind um, uh, uh, Pierre Michon, another uh, French writer, also a fantastic writer of sentences. Um, and, and of course, uh, Thomas Bernhardt, um, it, it's sort of impossible for me to pretend that I didn't have him in mind when I'm writing this book. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, Bernhardt is really important to me. I've, I've read, uh, all of his prose, um, but he was, uh, you know, both was and was not at the top of mind as I was writing this book. Uh, so. Uh, some some of the people that I was looking towards uh, when writing the book, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, the tone, I think, just came from from my um, dissatisfaction with with the
0: world. Speaking of this dissatisfaction with the world, one of the themes in the novel is the horrendous bureaucracy and politics of American colleges. Could you tell us a bit more about your experience of that? <laughs> I can. I've actually been uh,
1: fairly, I feel feel like I've been treated fairly well. I've been pretty fortunate. Uh, I have been teaching at the university level for, this will be my, the end of my 11th year, 10th year, maybe my 10th year. Um, And in that time, um, I've met some fantastic students. uh, And I have also shared some of the complaints of the narrator of the book, um, you know, mainly that, the, well, I guess I should explain it this way, like um, the people use the word uh, burnout a lot lately. Uh, my understanding is that the term actually came from, um, from medicine, where uh, burnout is experienced by doctors and nurses who, you know, by the Hippocratic Oath are supposed to perform certain functions. And then the administration of the hospital or the clinic where they work uh, continually places obstacles in the way of fulfilling those functions, right? And so burnout comes from knowing that you're supposed to do a thing and everything around you uh, being placed in the way of accomplishing that thing. And so feeling like, you know, I'm doing everything I possibly can and somehow I'm I'm still not able to break through and do this thing uh, that, that I'm, I I tell myself I'm devoted to doing. Um, There's a lot of that in academia right now. Uh, Not, certainly not uh, specific to me, Um, you know, not unique to me, I should say. Uh, But there's, I I feel like there's a lot of that in academia right now, because there's a shift in American universities uh, from a sort of model of this higher education model, uh, advanced education, to more of, at least uh, in, in many institutions, more of a um, you know, kind of an extension of uh, high school, of, um, you know, secondary education. Uh, and so as a result, the, just the nature of the institutions is changing, and I'm not sure uh, all the faculty are on board with that.
0: As a parent, this book was quite hard to reading. One of the motifs, I guess, you come back to is loss and dealing with loss. And as you said before, the inability to communicate loss sometimes. And your main character—I don't think this is giving anything away—he begins to kind of put together this effigy of his, you know, son. Um, how do you feel writing about that as a parent? Um,
1: I chose. I chose that. I mean, I, I also write about. Um, I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to say that. Uh, I deliberately chose certain plot points or certain um, emphases in the book um, as a kind of uh, dare to myself. Uh, but I think that's more or less what was happening. you know so so the book opens with a dog being uh, hit by a car and 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 dying. Um, and my thought in doing that was kind of like, uh, I hear a lot about, you know, this is a, a, a I hear in, in sort of a popular discourse um, that like the death of a pet is really particularly hard to read about or hard to see on screen. Um, and I was looking for those kinds of things um, for this book um, as, a, as like a challenge to myself, I guess, uh, of, of how do I, how can I write through material that might be particularly difficult um, as a reader, as a writer? Uh, to, to, um, to make your way through. Um, And so that's, I think how I wound up writing about that. Um, It is, it was, I would say that it was very difficult to revise this book, to rewrite this book, to get back into that way of thinking um, as a parent. Um, So I actually became a parent for the first time um, after I'd completed the first drafts of this book. Um, And so then revising the book uh, after a few years, that was more difficult, I think, than drafting the book. Um, and maybe having that experience of being a parent changed my attitude towards the material. But in any case, I, I think uh, it was it was surprisingly difficult, um, but not in like I was not weeping while I was writing the book. I just noticed that I was being very short with the people around me while I was revising the book, but I couldn't. In some way, it it stressed me out or or made me um, a less pleasant person to be around.
0: I wanted to ask you as well, with the structure of the book, is it something that you wrote episodically and then put it together? Or was it something you wrote uh, in a linear kind of fashion?
1: I did write it. um, The best of my recollection, uh, I wrote it during a summer break when... um, When I was I I knew that this was likely to be the last summer that I had a break, like I had summer vacation, I was not going to teach during the summer, we were not going to move cross country during the summer. Um, I had an idea that this would be the last time that I would get three months uh, to myself to finish uh, a book, and so I started and then wrote the entire book in that summer. Um, And the episodic nature of it would just be you know I would write. Uh, and the day's writing um, would end and then I would you know the next day I would start it again but I wouldn't um, I didn't always uh, reread the things that I'd written the day before and so it would just kind of push on and on and on because I wanted to I, I knew that I wanted to have the book a, a draft of the book done by the time classes resumed and so I couldn't really afford to be to, I couldn't really afford to do my normal process which is you know, I read back over um, several pages before starting to write for the day. Uh, so for, for this book, I was really just jumping right in um, at the exact point where I'd left off the day before and just continuing. Uh, and so actually, I think that created uh, a number of continuity problems for me when revising that I had to sort of um, figure out, uh, but at least in terms of drafting, it was uh, fairly smooth. You know, I was just kind of pushing forward every day. I would get a few thousand words done um, and then uh, do the same again the next day.
0: Okay. Um, tell me a bit more about working with Zero Gram and Jim over there. They've picked up so many great writers in the last few years. Um, people like Jen Craig, obviously, from here and a toast of other people. What's it been like working with them? Uh, It's been great. Jim is um,
1: himself a very talented writer. Uh, I didn't read his book, Novel Explosives, until after we were completely done with everything uh, Doomtown, and the book was um, already at the printers. Um, But uh, I didn't know of the book, and the reason why I initially submitted it had to do with uh, Greg Gerke's essay collection, See What I See, which is a book that I love very much. And so um, that, that, that's also how I, that book and its publisher is also how I wound up publishing a story collection called Babel with Splice. Um, But uh, in terms of Zero-Gram, Jim had some really good suggestions for the book. Um, he, In fact, he suggested that we cut out the first, well, he suggested that we rewrite, that I rewrite the first, um, few chapters of the book, I ended up just cutting them out. Uh, it was even more disaster, even more calamity. Um, and, and I think that maybe that was, it maybe pushed it into almost, um, you know, grand guignol, like just completely chaos, um, The you know, a, a compendium of all of the most awful things that could possibly happen. And it may have been just completely overwhelming as a result. So I think that was a good suggestion. Uh, and he had another number of other uh, suggestions to make. Um, but to this point, and the book, you know, will be out in a couple of weeks. To this point, uh, it's been a really, uh, very smooth and very pleasant experience uh, publishing with them. Excellent. And yes, they do. They put out some fantastic books. Jen's book, Greg Gerkey's book. Uh, I just read uh, their latest book, which is uh, Stephen Erickson's um, American Stutter. Uh, Steve Erickson is is um, one, was one of my favorite uh, writers, uh, still is one of my favorite writers. Um, and I didn't even know this existed. Uh, and so to hear that uh, ZeroGram was bringing it out uh, was very exciting.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that when you get to your current rates. <laughs> Do you have any advice for upcoming writers? Well, I think you can never go wrong by reading. Um,
1: Currently, I am, I am writing, I'm working on a new book, uh, but I find most of my writing time or the time that I set aside for writing, I mostly just read. Um, And it's, it's just good practice uh, to read a lot. Um, But I also think that a lot of the time I get I get, uh, you know, maybe a sentence structure that I want to try out, or something, some mis, I, almost every time it's an error, or misreading, uh, something that I read that I think, oh, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know you could do that in, in uh, a book, and then I'll go back and realize they didn't do that. I just misread it. And I don't know what I'm doing, uh, but that little error, that misreading, uh, sets off something in me that that makes me want to write and try to do the thing that I thought was done. Uh, but turns out wasn't um, in that book. So yeah, I read a lot um, and, you know, I I have fun, have fun writing. I I think that um, for a long time, I took it, I took writing much too seriously. And um, as a result, I became really, uh, it changed my attitude towards writing and publishing. And I think um, writing uh, the book that came out before, for Doomtown Correction was a correction for me and my approach to the writing process. It really made me rethink how I was looking at what I was doing as a writer um, and prioritize having fun and enjoying the process of writing over uh, some imagined standard of excellence uh, that I wasn't going to achieve in any case.
0: What books are you working on at the moment? Uh, Well, so the book that I just mentioned,
1: Correction, is a book of 101 very short stories. Some of them are essays. Some of them are somewhere in between. Uh, And that came out of a writing practice that I started in 2016, um, where I just gave myself a set of simple constraints. And one of those constraints was that I was going to write a new piece of something uh, every week. Um, which is not earth-shattering in any way, shape, or form, but it did give me a different approach to things, so that I was not um, I was not quite so obsessed with perfecting every little thing, because of course the next week I was just going to write something different. Um, and so that writing practice has continued. I have completed uh, another set of 101 texts. Um, that those are all essays. That that's now um, that's now done. And what I'm currently working on is a novel, I think, um, that uh, I'm really just having fun writing. I'm not thinking too hard about what it's going to be uh, or where it's going to go. And as a result, I think I have um, restarted the novel within the novel Uh, I think seven times. So it has seven different storylines going on at this point, which means that it will be the opposite of fun when I have to revise the thing. But in terms of drafting, it it's a blast, and I can just, you know, I I just do whatever I I feel like doing that day uh, in the book.
0: Okay, sounds really good. All right. Shall we talk about your gateway books? What were some of the books that uh, launched you into the world of literature and arts? Uh, yeah, well,
1: I, so I grew up in, um, in a very small town in Southern Louisiana, a couple of hours west of New Orleans. Um, and so we did not have a bookstore at all. Um, the closest bookstore was about a 40 minute drive away. And, um, and so I didn't have access to a lot of literature as a child. Um, one thing that I did have, because my parents, you know, my parents didn't encourage me to read, it's not as though they were uh, withholding books from me, Uh, but there was this thing that was advertised on television in the 1980s called Mysteries of the Unknown, uh, published by Time Life Books. Uh, It was this like large format. It was uh, this, this is an example, Mysteries of the Unknown, Mystic Places, with a pyramid and the Sphinx on the cover, uh, like this large format kind of leatherette bound with glossy pages. Um, some of the most wooden writing uh, you can imagine, uh, but replete with lots of illustrations, perfect for uh, a nine-year-old really interested in the supernatural and the paranormal. Um, and so this was not a, these were not books that you could get in a bookstore. Uh, you subscribed to them. And I think they put out like nine a year or something like that. So not quite one a month, but you would get them at regular intervals. And so I got a subscription to this. And then in the sort of interstices, uh, when I was waiting for the next volume to arrive, because this is what I liked to read about, I would go to the public library. And I um, I knew exactly where to find all of the books about paranormal things, about supernatural phenomena. And I would go right to that section and just take books down at random. I didn't know you know, what they were. Um, And I happened to go one day, excuse me, and I found a book called Tales of the Cthulhu Methode. And at the time, I had no idea who H.P. Lovecraft was, or what Cthulhu was, or anything like that. And it was shelved with other books that, you know, were nonfiction in the sense that they were presented as real accounts of things that had happened in the world. And so I thought that this was yet another one of those. And I took it home and I read it. Um, Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, for those who are not familiar, isn't actually a collection of Lovecraft stories. Uh, I think it has two Lovecraft stories in it. And the rest are written by fans and friends, uh, because Lovecraft, one of, the, one of the few admirable qualities he had was that he was very generous with his creations. Uh, and he encouraged other writers to make use of them. Um, and I, I, I kind of like, I, I still admire that about him. Um, I still think that's a really beautiful thing about him for all of the ugly things about him. Um, so that book uh, was a gateway book for me because uh, I believe it's uh, Call of Cthulhu uh, actually takes place in the swamps outside of New Orleans. And this was a, a rarity. I mean, this was almost the only time I ever saw where I grew up represented in popular culture when I was you know when I was a kid and so I read about it thinking that this was a true account about where I was living and I was just blown away um, and then to make matters uh, even sort of more alluring when I returned the book I think a librarian uh, recognized that it shouldn't have been shelved where it would have been shelved and so they reassigned it somewhere else in the library and so I could never find it again. And so it was this sort of like, uh, I, oh, that book that one time I got it. And it was so interesting about this cult that's trying to raise this dead God from the swamps. Uh, you know, like it was um, it was the perfect book for me at that time, You know, maybe eight or nine years old uh, and, and just thrilled to find something like that in the library. And then uh, the second um, gateway book that I would well, gateway books. Uh, that I would say uh, were particularly important to me Uh, after graduating from college, when I no longer had assigned reading of any kind and I didn't really know what to read. uh, I just, I happened to be living in New Orleans in the French Quarter at the time. And so I would just walk over to the public library and just pull down things off the fiction shelves. um, And I just, I noticed that the ones that I liked the best were books from two publishers. Uh, And so I knew at that point, all I have to do is go and look for those imprints on the spine and it'll be a book that I'll probably enjoy. Um, And so I noticed I really liked books from the publisher New Directions and I really liked books from the publisher Grow. Um, And because this was New Orleans and we had a, a big oil boom, in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, and then a giant bust thereafter. Uh, They had a ton of books from the 60s, 70s, and like almost nothing that was contemporary. So all of the Grove books were like when Barney Rossett was actually running the press. Uh, And it was just, you know, I could go and I knew anything with those those publishers was going to be something that I I would really enjoy. Uh, And so that was another gateway for me.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, Lovecraft is I haven't read all of your books, but have you, have you written like towards those themes of the supernatural and things like that? I have, I've written about
1: Lovecraft himself. I'm not a giant like super fan, uh, but he did leave a distinct impression on me. And I think he doesn't quite get the credit he's due. Um, He's actually a really interesting stylist. I think, People usually think of him and think of like purple prose and uh, ludicrous uh, adjectives um, and just, you know, much too verbose. Um, but the fact, I think the fact that he is so easy to parody is a reflection of just how distinct his style is, right? Because you can instantly recognize when somebody is, is um, aping Lovecraft. Uh, and then the other thing that I would say about Lovecraft um, have you read uh michelle Welbeck's essay it's, on lovecraft
0: yeah it's got a whole book on lovecraft that's fantastic yeah
1: it's really good against the mm-hmm. world against life um and it made me i read that book because i was reading Welbeck. Uh, this was in graduate school so uh 12 13 years ago um, but i was reading him and that was how i sort of got back into lovecraft because i read that essay and i thought this is this sounds so good like uh, Lovecraft as like the proto-transhumanist, or you know, Lovecraft as like um, I don't know. He 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 presented Lovecraft in this way that made his work that much more appealing to me because it was not. It was like the antithesis of domestic drama. Humans don't matter at all, you know, much less being the center of the universe. They're just they're nothing. Um, and something about that really appealed to me at that time.
0: Hmm. Um, do you have any current? carte blanche authors, authors you'd go out and buy their books straight away. I do. I
1: think I'm a sucker. I mean, I, uh, you can see from behind <laughs> me, uh, that I have quite a few books. I think, um, Elliot Weinberger, uh, the essayist, um, anything that his name, name is on, I will at least, uh, try to read, um, you know, he's a prolific translator of uh, poetry and I'm not, uh, a, a big poetry reader, but, um, on the strength of his essays and his other work, I'll always check out uh, his translations also. Uh, Marie Ndiaye, um, who is a French writer um, and has written, she is incredibly prolific. Seems like she writes more than one novel every year. Um, I love her stuff. It's, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's, um, it's sort of lightly surreal uh, or irreal. Um, but also really well uh, put together um, and just a lot of fun to read. Um, there is a, uh, I guess a journalist would be the right way, of, or maybe a critic um, called uh, Lawrence Weschler, uh, who has written uh, a lot for The New Yorker uh, and um, more recently for McSweeney's uh, and anything that he puts out, I'll read. Um, Darielle Lutz, for sure. Uh, anything that she puts out, I will definitely read. Uh, Brian Evanston is also another writer who I really admire and um, just about anything that he, well, absolutely anything that he puts out, I will read. And then finally, um, I'll say um, uh, Lydia Davis. Um, And especially, uh, I've I've been reading her translations recently. Um, She has, I mean, it probably goes without saying, she has fantastic taste or at least our tastes align on most things. Uh, And so I've discovered that anything that she has translated is definitely worth reading. not to mention her own fantastic work as an essayist and a short story writer.
0: Mm. On Evanson as well, he blurbs your book very nicely too.
1: He did. Um, He's a very nice person. Uh, I have never yet met him in person, uh, but we have corresponded a few times uh, just on various things. uh, And he's super generous, um, and especially uh, given that he does so much writing and is so busy as a writer himself Uh, that he was willing to read Doomtown, um, you know, I'm really grateful to him.
0: He's someone I haven't read yet and I've been meaning to for years. His work just doesn't seem to get to Australia that often. Um, Where should I start with him?
1: I would say either The Open Curtain, which uh, was in my top 10, would be in my top 10 if I were allowed um, more than 10. Uh, But uh, The Open Curtain is uh, an incredible, incredible book um, or I think a lot of people think, uh, last days is his best book. Um, I think I would probably, I would probably put the open curtain ahead of last days, but they're both just really, really good books. Um, and a lot of his short fiction is, is available online. Uh, and so that could be a, a way to, to start until you can find uh, a, a copy of his book.
0: Hmm. All right. Let's move on to the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed, or you're looking forward to well, I'm currently reading, I'm currently trying to complete reading
1: uh, Jan Fossa. Uh, so I started reading um, his fiction with the intention of sort of working my way to the septology, uh, which at least here in the U.S., um, the last volume of the septology was just published last month. Um, but I, I read um, all of the other fiction uh, that's in translation, in, in English translation, Uh, And then I discovered that there was one book that I was missing um, called Trilogy, uh, which was originally, I guess, a series of three uh, separately published novels in Norway, Um, but it's gone out of print here. It was uh, in print from Dahlke Archive, and then I think it kind of slipped through the cracks during that period where John O'Brien was sick and before uh, Deep Vellum picked up the press. Uh, But it will be coming back into print in June, I believe, Um, so I'm looking forward to reading that. And then also reading the septology. Um, so I've been reading all of uh, Jan Fossa and um, another Norwegian writer. Uh, I've been reading all of uh, Dag Solstad's work that is in English translation. It is so good. I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. Um, and then I'm also uh, trying to read all of uh, Barbara Cummings' work. Um, and uh, that has been just as challenging as the others, even though. Barbara Cummins is an English or was an English novelist. And so it's all, you know, there's no need for translations. Um, still, her books have fallen out of print, uh, especially here in America, um, if they were ever in print here. Uh, and so I've been uh, trying to track down each and every one. I'm currently reading a book called Sisters by a River, which was her first novel. Um, but uh, uh, her work is, is really, really just fun to read. Um, very much to my tastes, uh, it, it kind of eschews uh, scene uh, and goes for much more a, a much stronger voice, um, and then uh, you know it's just basically a summary of of terrible lives with some uh, lightly surreal things happening in them, uh, which makes it sound not terribly interesting, but it's just it's really fantastic work.
0: Okay, very good. Are you going to read the new Welbeck when it comes out?
1: Uh, eventually. Yeah, I think so. Um, The new one is quite long, isn't
0: it? Yeah, I think it's about seven hundred pages.
1: I have a lot of trouble with those kinds of books, although they do make a number of appearances in my top ten. But I, I I am, um, I am a a reformed comic book nerd, and so I cannot allow the spines to get creased. And with big books, that is especially challenging, and it really puts a strain on your wrists. Uh, and so I tend to to read them very slowly and and like maybe just a few a year. Uh, but yeah, I'll I'll definitely read it when it comes
0: out. And do you want to tell me a little bit more about Steve Erickson's new book?
1: Oh, American Stutter. Um, it's like a it's supposed to be a journal of the last the last year and a half of the Trump presidency here. Um, and he cal- he calls it at one point something. Uh, called a hallucinics, uh, which he says is, I don't, I don't have the book in front of me, so I'm going to um, get it wrong. Uh, but uh, he says is a term that he borrows from, uh, I believe, uh, um, a Greek word. Let me see if I can find it. But anyway, it's it's a journal that he kept during uh, 2019, 2021. Um, and it also documents uh, the end of his marriage. Um, and I don't know. It, it was a. It's a. It's a book. It's very much a journal. It, it feels very much of a piece. It's not, you know, just some stray thought. Uh, more of an essay on the state of America. And I think I appreciated it for that reason. Um, but I think um, you know, I'm also a, a huge Erickson fan, as I think I mentioned. Um, and in particular, I loved um, Amnesia Scope and Days Between Stations uh two of my very favorite novels uh, this is uh this is to say the least a departure from those books um but also you know in the way that those books are are uh, commentaries on los angeles Ca- california the u.s uh this is very much uh part of that uh canon
0: we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the zero we're speaking with gabriel blackwell This episode is brought to you by Elon Musk in the brand new Twitter. We value your free speech, you join now, you piece of We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Gabriel's Top 10.
1: So the top 10, um, when I was thinking about um, the books that I would put in a top 10, uh, my first thought was I had, I read The Thousand Nights and a Night, Don Quixote, The Decameron, and this, the book that I put in my top 10, the manuscript found in Saragossa all around the same time. And I had trouble picking between those there are similar books in a lot of ways. Um, these, com- these giant compendia of tales. Uh, and I ultimately narrowed it down to Don Quixote and A Thousand Nights and a Night and also the manuscript found in Saragossa um, and chose the manuscript found in Saragossa. Uh, Count Jan Potoski, um, very bizarre collection of stories about demons and ghosts and vampires and thieves and politics and you know uh, all fantastic tales the reason why i chose that one over the others um is that it does this uh, just a really fun thing um where it you know it's the same sort of setup as the decameron it's a group of people telling stories to each other but Within those stories, there are more stories. And then within those stories, there are more stories. And within those stories, there are more stories. Um, and I like the effect of that. But there's also this other thing that Potoski does in the book that I I just find really thrilling. Um, and that sh- is shared in common with another book in my top 10, Jose Donoso's The Obscene Bird of Night. In both cases, you have... These kind of, um, I guess, uh, William Gas, Gassian characters. Uh, Gas says, I think, sort of infamously or, or famously, that a character is uh, a bunch of uh, language attached to a name, right? So that's what the, that's what a character is, uh, or you could say like a, a theory of language that is particular or distinct or unique. Um, and both Potosky and Donoso use that very much to their advantage because they give you this kind of um, set of characteristics that floats between characters. So it's not not like um, a single character takes on many different disguises, so much as it is each character bleeds into or melts into the neck. Um, And so they have these things in common. And when you recognize those commonalities, uh, it's a really thrilling feeling. Um, and in fact, when thinking about doing this top ten, I picked up the manuscript found in Zaragoza and I couldn't put it down. And I'm now uh, about six hundred pages in, um, with uh, just a little bit left to go. Uh, but I, I, you know, I wanted to to reread it. It's such a fun book to read. Um, and so, yeah, that those are my first couple of choices. Uh, also, I really liked um, Gertrude Stein. And I had a lot of trouble choosing a Gertrude Stein to put on this list, um, but I ultimately chose the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas um, because I think it's, it's interesting at the language, the sentence level, uh, but also very approachable. And I really like the conceit of it. Um, it's very brazen um, and probably exploitative. Uh, to write a memoir from the perspective of your partner and call it the autobiography of. uh, And I I liked that about the book. Um, But I had a lot of trouble, you know, did I choose Making of Americans, uh, which is more fascinating as a linguistic object, uh, or Three Lives, which was my very first stein that I ever read and very much um, something that I'm sort of sentimental about, especially the Melanctha portion, which I think everybody... Um, knows, but uh, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Uh, then uh, Franz Kafka's The Castle, um, which I think probably doesn't need any any description from me. Uh, William Gaddis's J.R., um, which is such a fun book, but also a book that I think I think it can it only can seem fun if you're willing to read it as it's presented, um, you know, as an amusement. Uh, that also happens to be a particularly incisive critique of, of capitalism and the way that America works. Um, but it, it did take me some getting used to. It's a book that sort of requires you to acclimate yourself to it uh, and its peculiar way of uh, telling its story. Um, but I, I, I love JR and I think of it all the time. Uh, the next one is a book that I haven't actually finished reading, um, and I hope that I never. Uh, We'll finish reading. Uh, It is Jorge Luis Borges' Collected Fictions. Uh, I've read the beginnings of that book and most of that book a number of times, um, but I always stop before the end because I always want to have another Borges story to look forward to, something that I've never read before. Um, Next is William Gass's Omen Setter's Luck. Um, Such a good book. It is also The book uh, on this list that I read for the first time most recently, uh, I only read it last year for the first time, and it's so good. It is such a good novel. I love Gass. I've read all of his essays, um, and I would have put his essays on here, particular uh, Fiction and the Figures of Life um, on this list, but I decided that I wanted to stick just to fiction this list, so uh, Omen Setter's Luck. Uh, Next is Elfrida Jelinek's um, The Piano Teacher. Um, I'm not sure, well, I love The Piano Teacher and I love all of Jelinek's work. Uh, I I kind of, here again, I hesitated uh, whether I should put Wonderful Wonderful Times or The Piano Teacher on the list. Wonderful Wonderful Times is a little bit more interesting from a language or voice perspective, uh, at least to me. Uh, But they're both equally cruel and unforgiving and, um, you know, very propulsive. It's hard to put them down. Um, I think, at least for me, it's hard to put them down. I think a lot of people put them down immediately because um, they're turned off by the characters. Uh, But that is not a concern for me. Um, And then Flan O'Brien's The Third Policeman, um, which is both uh, one of the funniest books I've ever read. And also uh, a horribly disturbing book, um, and just wonderful all around. It is the book that I've given the most often as a gift, um, and it is itself a gift. And then um, Marcel Proust's *The Swann's Way*, translated by Lydia Davis. Uh, I'd read the the um, I'd read the sort of standard translation, the Kilmartin uh, and uh, Moncrief translation, and I'd read the entirety of um, *A la recherche*. Uh, but, uh, then, uh, Davis came out with her translation and I read it and it was, it seemed to me like a completely different book. Um, and again, this is another book where the it's, it is, uh, it's such a beautiful book the, the sentences are so beautiful, um, that it's, it's quite easy to just, uh, you know, I think of it and I pick it up and now all of a sudden I'm reading it again. Um, but I would read it again and again and again and I really wish that she uh, would translate the rest of uh, Proust I know that uh, she has many other uh, things to do and, and certainly lots of other uh, interesting books to translate but um, for selfish reasons I kind of wish she would finish that
0: it's <laughs> an amazing list of books oh thank you. <laughs> All right, before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can find you online and where we can go and order the amazing Doomtown? And I've got some homework to do to get your other books as well.
1: Well, uh, you can find me online at GabrielBlackwell.com. I think Doomtown will be available starting on May 10th, uh, just about anywhere um, I believe that if you go to zerogrampress.com, um, they may have some preferred buying option. Uh, but I suspect, you know, Amazon or any bookseller uh, should be able to get it. Um, it's not a—it's um, not a particularly obscure title uh, um, in the sense of uh, having a, a distributor that's difficult to get, get to. Uh, and then, let's see. Um, Splice uh, put out Babel, um, really uh, wonderful experience publishing that book with Splice, uh, and that's this is Splice., I believe is the uh, website for that publisher.
0: Perfect. Very good. Well, I urge everybody to go out and buy Doomtown because it's uh, going to blow you away. I think it's again one of these books that's going to be on a lot of top 10 lists at the end of the year. It's pretty unforgettable. and I am really keen to read whatever you write next.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ben. Thank
0: you so much. This has been really fun. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome.
1: And thank you again.
0: Thanks once again to Gabriel Blackwell. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod. And you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode next week.